So here we go. Last time we were talking about if we really want to understand, if we want to know who we are, why we're here, how good God is, we got to go back to before time. we got to go back to eternity. And we started out talking about what's kicking all this off is Psalm 34, verse 8. Remember what Psalm 34, verse 8 says? Yep, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord. And that word taste, it's so funny because Malcolm Smith did a, did a teaching that I just found this morning, but he did it two weeks ago on, on the taste and see. And he talked about taste means to take it in. And when you take something in, it becomes what? Part of you. So when you, it says taste and see that the Lord is good, you're tasting God. You're tasting His goodness. And you're taking it inside of you. And when you take something inside of you, it becomes part of you. Right? So the Scripture is saying... Bring God in taste. Let him come inside of you. Let that goodness unfold. And you do that by trusting that he is who he says he is and that out of his love, he manifests goodness in your life. And last week, Bill talked about you know looking at good. We can't look at good from the concept of good and evil because God transcends the duality of good and evil, and his goodness exists above that, outside of that. His goodness is so broad, so vast, that we can't even really define it, but we can experience it. We can glimpse it out of his love. He's wanting the best for us, and the goodness of God, the kindness of God, is what leads us to our change of mind. And that's how we begin to experience it. And so this journey that we're on right now is to begin to understand that Psalm 34, 8 should be the reality of our life. Every single day, we should be tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. But it starts from a paradigm perspective. Either I believe it or I don't. And if I don't believe it, what am I going to get? I'm going to get what I believe, which is going to be short of believing that he's good and that his goodness is manifested in me and towards me. So we talked about that. We talked about, I think somebody came up with the definition even that goodness is yummy. Was that you, Norman? Who? That was you. Goodness is yummy, right? And so we looked at God in, in eternity before creation, and we looked at he has no beginning, he has no end, He's independent of time. He exists in Trinitarian form. He is good. He's relational. He's holy. He's love. All of those things we talked about. And all of those are the essence of who he is. And if I can turn this page, where's Vanna? <laughs> As creator, he's relational. He's good. All And his, and his goodness comes out of it his love, he's in union, he's a father, his name is everlasting, he doesn't lie, intrinsic in his nature is fellowship, 
I think that was supposed to be joy, if I remember right. And that he's light in life, because that's what John 1 says. And we talked a little bit about if we're going to interpret God or understand God, we have to look at letting God define himself. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Spirit. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the goodness of God. If you've seen Jesus, you've experienced the love of God. That's called the Christological approach. And this is the way the early church fathers interpreted and understood God through the lens of Christ. Okay? The minute you move away from the lens of understanding through Christ, you run the risk of misunderstanding God. And if you misunderstand God, you're going to be off like if you're traveling. If you're traveling a million miles and you're off one degree in your, traje- your trajectory, how far off are you going to be? Like way off. So anything that does not point to Jesus or does not interpret through the lens of Jesus runs the risk of error. And the duality of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil totally misses it. And we're going to talk about that next week. But God says, if you want to know me, look here. And Jesus talked about that. So here's here's something. What we believe about God's goodness impacts every aspect of your life. If you don't believe God is good, you will not experience consistent goodness in your life. He still may break through, but the minute you think he's not good all the time, you've started to build a wall that he then has to blow up. Any of you ever put up barriers between you and God? Anybody have God blow up your barriers? You can put them up, but he's going to constantly attack them. And since God is bigger than my barriers, eventually he's going to break through, right? So then the question becomes, do I have an expectation that God is good? And that's a question you need to begin to ask yourself. Do I have an expectation that God is good? Because if I do, then that means his love can flow fully and completely and unhindered. Here's the trouble I have, though. When, I'm doing, when things are going well, I can, really, uh, I can really say yes to that question. But when things become challenging, sometimes that's not always an easy yes. Like this morning. Well, yeah, you know, it's troubling this morning. But here's the best part of it. When you back up, when you're, in tr- when you're having a troubling moment, if you back up and go, he is good, watch how quickly the trouble dissipates. Because the minute you back up and go, I'm not defined by what's going around, like the technology issues this morning, but I am in relationship with the one who loves me and wants nothing but the best for me. Reset. Easy to say, sometimes not so easy to do. (laughs) I get that. But the more we meditate that he's good and that, that goodness flows out of his love and he wants to express it towards me, the quicker things will turn around when the speed bumps come. Okay?
What comes into our minds when we think about God, according to A.W. Tozier, is the most significant and important thing about us. So, have you ever stopped? I used to ask this question in the healing rooms. Some Some of you may remember this. What's in your heart? And I used to ask that question because it forced you to stop and let your thoughts come up. And the minute your thoughts come up, that's a snapshot of where you're at at that moment with God. So how many, how many of you consistently, and this is a rhetorical question, how many of you consistently stop and check what's going on in your heart, what thoughts are coming up? Because those thoughts, as they come up, are dictating what's going on at that moment in your life. So if, my, if I'm having a tough moment and I'm going... Now let's just be blunt. God, you suck. I'm not going to get a quick turnaround because I'm not going to be open to receiving it. But if I go, you know, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what I'm thinking at the moment, God, you're still good. And David used to do that in the Psalms, right? David would start out of a lot of his Psalms with a lament. And then halfway through a Psalm would flip and start praising and recognizing the goodness of God doesn't matter exactly what the issue was at that moment, but the principle is when I'm going through a tough moment, if I begin to praise, if I begin to acknowledge God in his goodness, circumstances change. Because by the end of the psalm, things changed for David almost every single time. So we can, we can experience that. That means we may have to write a reminder note to ourselves and stick it on the mirror that goes, when life sucks, praise. Or some, some other variation of that. But you see, I don't expect life to suck. So when, I, when I'm having a difficult moment, praise. Thanksgiving. And as I do that, the more consistently I do that, the more I begin to see Jesus in the moment, because Jesus is going to reveal love in that moment to me. He's going to speak encouragement in that moment to me. And I think those are things that I just wanted to put out there for you this morning. You know, Bill Johnson says, God's goodness is beyond our ability to comprehend, but not our ability, not beyond our ability to experience. In other words, he's bigger than we are, but he's always showing himself to us. So we can experience his goodness on a consistent basis. And this Christological perspective, turn to, me, turn to Psalm 62 a minute. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 a minute. Because it's important to get, understand this Christological perspective as we begin to move into the creation event and beyond. Psalm 62, verse 11 and 12. All right, let me, so who's got a, who's got a um, New King James? Anybody? This is an English standard and it's different. Read it out of the New King James. Read it loud. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, also to you, O Lord, belongs to mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Okay. He renders, he renders to each one, and it's actually his work is actually his plan. It's not our work. It's actually te- it's his, his work, his plan. He renders according to his plan. That's the way some other translations say it. Um, look at Psalm 145.3 a minute. 
145.3. Someone read that real quick. 145.3. Let me, let me hold that out there and get a better look at that. Yes, 145.3. Great is the Lord, what is that? Great is the Lord, and greatly, to be greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. You can insert the word goodness there. You can search the word love there. We don't have to search it out. He shares it with us. He didn't call us to search for His love. He doesn't call us to search for His greatness because that would mean we lack. But what he does do is he shares it. We can search and search and search and never find it in our own. But he freely gives. He freely shares. So his goodness is constantly flowing. His greatness is flowing towards you. His life is flowing towards you. His love is in you. I mean, it, it flows and it just deposits and it never leaves. Norman. Yes, there you go. In the message, it says there's no boundaries to his greatness. That's, that's just perfect. There's no boundaries to his greatness. And that goes along with eternity. There's no boundaries in eternity, right? We talked about that. And so when we look at this from a Christological perspective, then Christ is the demonstration of how, how limitless he is. Right? Christ is the essence of how vast and big and loving and kind he is. And we talked, I gave you a, a, a quote last, last week from Athanasius that says, the right way to think about God is to start with Jesus. If we start from any other reference point, we are going to miss the most significant aspects of what God wants us to know about him. So God has this plan before creation, right? And this creation plan, you can look at from a Christological perspective as well, but I'm going to draw kind of a rectangle here just because I don't have a big enough board to draw what God really is like. But let's say this rectangle is eternity. And we know God is all through this. There's no part of eternity that God isn't in. And there's no part of eternity that isn't in God. Okay? And, and eternity is a word that really doesn't capture well what happened before creation and what's going on now. But there's this place that exists called eternity. And it's the heart and the essence of God is there. Now, if God has a plan before the foundation of the universe as to expressing his love what does that plan look like it looks like jesus and how does it express because now remember maybe i should do it from this way let me read you something out of this book this is a book called delighting in the trinity and if i can find the right page he talks about creation it's about by a guy named michael reeves and you got to love this guy's humor. He, the first subsection of this chapter he entitles, 
single god, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with good sense of humor. Okay? (laughs) Single god, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with good sense of humor. So we got God wanting to create. And if God is relational, and if God is good, and God expresses his love through his goodness and his creation, what is he going to create? Goodness and relationality, right? He's looking for a relationship. And it's often called, in Scripture, he's looking for the sons of God, right? So the creation plan is to create the sons of God, and the sons of God can then be in relationship. So the essence of the sons of God and the purpose of creation would be relational. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that he's going to the the earth isn't something that he cares about or the universe at all, but it is a place where relationality takes place. Now we're still talking the plan here. Okay, we haven't talked about the reality yet. But God is looking for sons that he can have relationship with and that relationship would be full of life. How do I know that? Because Jesus is life. And so it's a life, it's a life loving, joyous relationship. And it can only come from the triune God. Let me give you, let me share, share with you what Michael Reeves says. There in the early days, um, in the Babylonian, it's called the Enuma Elish. There's a god called Marduk, and he will, and he purposes to create. This is this is a creation story from a different society. He purposes to create humankind so that they can be his slaves. That way, he can sit back and live off their labor. Is that relational? No, is that loving? Is that joyful for the created? Uh-uh. Is that life? Not really. Not slavery. And Marduk is more plain speaking than most other gods, but whatever the religion, most gods since have tended the light to have the like approach. In other words, most societies have a god who's creating, not most societies, most religions have a god who's creating to serve him. So why do, how do you think Judaism and, and Christianity stood out in those days? It stood out right away. Because it wasn't about serving him, but it's about him serving us out of his love. And then there was another one. It talks about Islam in here. Um, it says, there's a fascinating tension at, at, the, at just this point in Islam. Traditionally, Allah is said to have 99 names, titles which describe him as he is in eternity. One of them is, quote-unquote, the loving. But how could Allah be loving in eternity? Before he created, there was nothing else in existence that he would love. And the title does not refer to self-centered love, but love of others. The only option is that Allah eternally loves his creation, but that in itself raises an enormous problem. If Allah needs his creation to be who he is in himself, in other words, to be loving, can't be loving without created beings 
then Allah is dependent on his own creation. And if he's dependent on his own creation, then can he really be God? Hmm. Versus, and this is how he says it, therein lies the problem. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? And in this particular case, this love is an outgoing love from our God, his outgoing, not internally centered. So, Aristotle, who helped mess things up in the, with, his, in, with his philosophy, though, did get something right, that essentially, if a God is a God truly of love, then there has to be love outside of himself. In other words, he has to extend that love outward and can't expect anything back. Allah expects you to do things for him, including die for the cause. That's the way he's presented out there. If a non-triune God can't create sons that are relational, that have love, joy, and life in them, because he can't give it to them. Some of you look very perplexed. Questions? Remember, our God is three in one. You got the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit love each other, and you have this interrelational in the in the in the interrelational in eternity. So you have a relational in eternity. A monotheistic God doesn't have two counterparts to engage love in love with. It's all about Him. The Father pours in pours out unconditionally to the Son, and to the Spirit, and and it just it's just consuming love that has to be expressed. What better way to express than to create sons? Which means humanity was desired from before the foundation of the universe. God wanted us before he created. You, are, you were already a thought in the Trinity's mind before you were born. You were a thought in Trinity's mind before in the beginning, the spoken. And that's something to hold on to. Because once God puts a thought in place and puts a plan in place, he always carries it out. There's scripture that says, and we'll cover that in a minute, I always carry out my plans. Always. Which means then, you can't mess this up. You can't mess up being created as a son of God. You can't mess it up. Because he always fulfills his plan. Which also means, you can't mess up relationship permanently. You can mess it up short term. But permanently, you can't. Because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. So, John, if you're a son of God, created or intended for creation before the foundation of the world, known by God before the foundation of the world, and are in relationship with him, do you ever feel love, peace, life, and joy? Hmm? Yeah. 
I mean, you almost can't help it. No matter what you're doing in your life to screw things up, you still are going to feel it, right? I mean, just ask me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> and Karl Barth, who is actually a Trinitarian, who, who really helped bring Trinitarian thought from the early church back into the now, you know, he talks about, in the same freedom and love in which God is not alone in himself, but is the eternal begetter of the Son, and who is the eternally begotten of the Father, he also turns as creator outwardly in order that absolutely and outwardly he may not be alone, but the one who loves in freedom. So not only does he create, but he also gives us a level of freedom to decide, part of the plan was freedom, to decide how we want to interact. And we see that in the garden. People make choices. But their choices don't overrule the plan. In the end, the plan still works. Now, this is all still in before in the beginning. And Barth also says, in other words, as God in himself is neither deaf nor dumb, but speaks and hears his word from all eternity, so outside his eternity he does not wish to be without hearing or echo, and that is without ears and voices of the creature. So not only does he want to be in a relationship, but he hears us. And this is all planned before the foundation of the universe. He hears us. He's never so far away that he can't hear you because he's never separated from you. But what have we been taught at times? God's out here. I'm down here. And I hope he hears me. He hears me all the time. So in this plan of creation, and there's other aspects to it, God is moving for our benefit to enhance the relationship, to enhance life, to enhance love, and to bring great joy into our lives. And that's a concept we've struggled with in the past because we've been told we're separated from God. And it's just not true. But it permeates our thoughts at times. Back in the deepest part, the recesses of our mind, Back in there, does he really love me? Is he really here right now? Does he really know what I'm going through? He knew all of that before he called you into existence. And that's stunning. And it's freeing. And it's encouraging. And this then becomes the dilemma See, take a look at, if you, let, me, let me do it this way. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We have to get into our conscious understanding that we're not an accident. We have to get into our conscious understanding that we've never been abandoned. We have to get into our conscious understanding 
that he is our biggest cheerleader. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hmm. We've been blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Where? Heavenly places. Where's that? Ah, but where is that? In us. Even as he chose us from before what? The foundation of the world. Can you say eternity? He chose us in eternity. That we should be holy and blameless before him. So you are chosen in eternity and you are already declared holy and blameless. Is there anything you can do on earth to screw that up? No. I mean, I'm pretty blunt today. So. And it says, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, you could insert plan, for his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Capital B. Jesus. So, let's look at that again. In love, we know that's the outward agape love that flows out from the Trinity. Before the foundation of the universe, He predestined us for adoption. Sons. You were declared to be a son before the foundation of the universe. It's not, I pick this one, I reject that one. It's not, one over here, two bad over here. It's all of us. Because none of us existed in the natural yet when this was declared as the plan. And you are blessed with grace. You're the, actually the expression of His grace. You're the expression of Christ who is grace. And it doesn't matter what you did today. Because we're talking about this vertical relationship. It's called an ontological perspective. It's the relationship between man and God. And it's not based on your behaviors, unlike Calvinism would have you believe. It's not like Arminianism would have you believe. It's not based on behavior. It's based on the choice of God. He chose. He planned he chose, he implemented. You weren't even part of the equation other than, I want you. You know, I mean, talk about, remember the old posters, Uncle Sam, I want you? Well, this goes way beyond that. This is like mega billboard time. I want you. And just to prove it, I created the universe. Hmm. And in that perspective then, of those verses, it hammers that in eternity, you already existed. You may not have existed in physical form, but you existed in the heart of God. Because he already thought about it, and he said, I'm creating you. And it doesn't matter your circumstances of conception in the natural. The fact is, I'm creating you. And it doesn't matter what parents you had or didn't have or family you had or didn't had, I'm creating you, period. 
and I'm creating you for an awesome life because we're going to have fun together. I'm not cranky. I'm having fun. Now, if you also take a look at, just to reinforce that, go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I know this, again, seems slow because I'm taking about three weeks to, to really lay a foundation and then we'll ramp some things up. As long as I continue to get blank looks, we'll just go slow. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 1, um, verses, uh, let's go, 7 through 10 a minute. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So we exist in spirit form to, to a degree, correct? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering in the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose. And again, you could insert the word plan and, and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I have a plan for you before I even create the universe. And it's full of grace because it's full of Jesus in your life. See again, that word purpose can be substituted as plan. Or with plan. I have a plan for you. And we know in eternity, well, let me ask you this. In eternity, is there anything bad about God? No. In Christ, did you see anything bad about Christ in the Scriptures? No. Did Christ do evil? No, because he, he didn't live out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is there evil in eternity? No. Because he's good. He's loving. He's kind. And that love that is for us isn't asking for us to pay a price. That ought to bring joy to your heart. I can get off the treadmill. I can get off the treadmill. I can just stand here and sweat. I don't need to be on the treadmill. <laughs> it's hot in here today. Uh, what can I say? I'm having fun. I'm having fun. So... So the plan is from before the foundation of the world is to create sons that he can have relationship with. We all on that page? And Isaiah 46, verse 11 says this, Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So before the foundation of the world, he's put a plan in place to create to create towards relationship and fellowship. And his word says, I will do it. And if you look at Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to, the, to those who are called according to his purpose slash plan. Are you all called according to his plan? So do we not, let me put, should we not expect everything to work out for good? 
shouldn't our expectations be good things are happening to me today? I think they should. If I wake up in the morning and go, bad things are going to happen to me today, how many negative experiences am I going to have in that day? Quite a few. But if I go, good things are happening to me today, I mean, I have, you know, since I have been doing that for the last few weeks, Carol sort of got me started on this, this. But as I have shifted into thinking, wait a minute, good things are happening to me today. And all of a sudden, good things start happening. People stop and say hello that haven't talked to me in a long time. I'm not stressed out when I go to the grocery store. I find a few bargains here and there. I mean, just little things, but they all mount up into a sense, wow, good did happen today. And then every day I wake up, it's a good day. To, it's a good day because I'm awake, right? Yes, indeed. So, and then Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to the image of his Son, that we might be the, or excuse me, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if Jesus is the firstborn of, any, of many brothers, who are the brothers? We are. And that was planned before the foundation of the world. Totally loved, totally accepted, totally anticipated. Before he said in the beginning, he was anticipating you. Can I ask you a question? Yes. What do you say to someone that says, okay, how do I become a son of God? How do I become a son of God? Okay. I already am. You just start going, you already are. Start meditating on that. Okay? So Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. We just did that one a minute ago, but I just want to highlight that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. See how those pre-foundational scriptures begin to click in place? If we, if, if we look at it, because that was Christ's heart, to click it in place. Part of the incarnational reality is he stepped out of, of eternity into time to bring the plan to completion to perfect it. But we don't get that if we think of separation. If we think we are out here and we and he's over here and I have to do something to bridge the gap, there's not enough that I can ever do to bridge the gap. And I'll always be wondering. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From could translate also before. But either way, there's a kingdom created for you in his place, in his heart. And a kingdom is full of goodness. And it's forever and ever. Okay, I'm going to do one, another five or six minutes and then we'll stop. I want to, this is what I wanted to send you home with today. There are two primary views of kingdom reality, of where in the beginning took place. So, if this circle, or oval probably is a better way to say it, is eternity and God is there, 
there are two perspectives. One is in the beginning takes place outside of God. And the other is in the beginning is in God. One is separation. And one is unity. This is the, the known creation, the known universe, however you want to say it, inside eternity. Ladies, can life exist in a womb? Can life exist inside God? Can life exist in eternity if God is eternity? Why do we have to think that the universe is separate from God? Separation started in the garden at the fall. Up until that time, you will not see any reference in Scripture. In fact, you'll never see a reference in Scripture to separation. This became a man-made religious perspective. But if when God said, let there be everything that followed after that happens inside of him as a place inside of him is there separation no if he said let there be light and he moves it outside of it well can he can he move it outside of his existence that really is the question can he create outside of his existence? No, because he's everywhere. But it's a question that comes from, from 1,500 years of hammering since Augustine that we're outside of God. Now, here's the last thing I'll leave you with. If, if we live in separation... How do I get back into eternity? If I live outside of God, how do I get back in? Well, maybe if I say the sinner's prayer correctly, maybe if I do enough, maybe if I mind my P's and Q's in public, or maybe when I if I confess enough, God might grant me re-entry but if i already exist in god inside of eternity then everything that exists in eternity is mine and didn't god say all the things that he has planned for us started in eternity that takes us up to the creation moment did he create inside of himself or outside of himself? And if you see that he, you're outside of his creation, outside of him at the moment of creation, you got a false perspective. Because what did Christ see? What did Christ see? I have plans for you in eternity. I have made preparations from before the foundation in eternity. Nowhere does Christ say, I'm kicking you outside of my presence. 
I'm creating you outside of my existence. Because to be out, the reality is, is to live outside of the existence of God is to be dead. And that's not even accurate. To live outside of the existence of God is an impossibility. We talked about it last week. He's in everything. But this view of separation predominates, and we're going to destroy it in our lives in the next 10 weeks. It's got to go. Every last vestige of it has to go because it warps how we respond to God. It shapes us in the wrong direction. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint on something that's about four weeks down the road. The cross existed before the foundation of the world, right? Because it says in the scriptures he was preordained to, to sacrifice his life. He was the Lamb of God before the foundation of the universe. So, if mankind is in here struggling, which we will see after the Adam and Eve event, mankind began to struggle. When we say Christ came out of eternity, we're actually saying he stepped into his creation, which was still in his heart. Think about that. He stepped into his creation, not from outside of time to inside of time, but time existing in him, and I stepped into the timeline to set things right. And because God is mindful of everything going on, he's not distant in a, in a way waiting for things to disintegrate. He's always influencing. But he really influenced when he stepped into the timeline and became man. That has a profound impact on all of us that I don't think we've fully, that we've even close to mind to the depth that he intends. So here's your homework for the week. I want you to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Read it from Christ's heart perspective. This creation is called very good, creation inside of him. We want to say this is good, this creation of separation, but it can never be good. Separation can never be good, can never be loving, because separation is pushing you away. Did God push you away? No. I can choose to put blinders on while I'm living in his heart. I can be blind to what he's doing if I want to be. But you know what? There's a quality of light called Jesus that penetrates all darkness. I know this is kind of like paradigm challenging. This is, this is Jesus 101 for the paradigm challenge. And I'm working it out with you. So, But turn those lights. Can we turn those lights on a minute? I can, I guess. I can turn that light on a minute. See the shadow that, that forms from the light on the, on the paper? The light of Christ is not limited by the natural object, but penetrates every shadow. What's that mean? Lots of things. A 
physicists can tell you that their, their latest is they think there's 26 dimensions to reality. So can light exist in a dimension unknown to us that penetrates our dimension? Of course it can. Radio waves do it. Microwaves do it. Gamma rays do it. And gamma rays are a form of light. So we're going to spend our, a lot of time in the next week, maybe two, centering on creation internal to the heart of God inside of eternity. That's going to be freeing when we're done. And then I'm going to compare and contrast for the weeks after that how the concept of separation and the concept of union, how the lives that come out of those two concepts are diversely different. One is full of life and happiness. One is always fear, anxiety, and stress. So that's where we're going to go in the next few weeks, but I'm taking it slow. I'm trying to show you from Scripture so you don't think I'm making it up. And you're going to go check Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All right? So we're done for the day. We're going to do communion.